Hey guys, it's Ellie, and welcome to Minute Mysteries. You're in the right place. First of all, hi, welcome to the podcast. I hope that you guys, if you're new, hope you guys stick around. And if you're not new, welcome back. I'm glad that you're still here. So if you've never been here, I'm going to kind of explain what's going on. I basically take this book of logic puzzles that I have. They're called Minute Mysteries or Detectograms. I'm sure you've heard of them. They're pretty common, but I found a really old book from like 1920. And it has a lot of these quote-unquote detectograms in them. And what I do every episode is I read three of them and I try and solve them. And then once I either have my solution or I'm out of ideas, then I will read the solution and we will laugh all together about how much I failed. Because, (laughs) dude, these get really hard sometimes. So anyways, with no more waffle, let's jump right in. No Way Out On a battered desk, in the small, dark room, lay a penciled note in handwriting resembling that of the dead man. Dear John, you know the trouble I'm in. There's only one way out, and I'm taking it. You're my pal, and will understand. Good luck. Signed, Paul. The only other furniture consisted of the chair in which Paul Morrow had been found with his throat cut, a bed, and a highly ornate and apparently brand new wastebasket. It had been definitely established that the dead man had not left the room during the 24 hours before he was discovered. Finishing his examination of the contents of the man's pockets, two $20 bills, a cheap watch, and an expensive wallet in which there was a picture of a beautiful woman, Fordney turned his attention to the meager inventory of the room. That's all we can find, said Inspector Kelly, indicating a dictionary, scraps of a letter in a feminine handwriting found in the ornate wastebasket, a pen, some cheap stationery, a few clothes, pipe and tobacco, and a bloody, razor-sharp knife. Certainly has all the appearances of suicide, he continued. The store was locked, and no one could have left by that window. What do you make of it, Fortney? The professor didn't reply at once. He picked up the photograph, studied it a moment, and then, with a slow, searching look around the small room, said, Better try to piece those bits of letter together. This isn't suicide, it's murder. I believe you're right exclaimed Kelly with dawning comprehension. What brought Fordney to this conclusion? Alright, this is very interesting. So, this is actually a super short one. So, first of all, I just want to kind of go over, like, summarize what we just read, because it kind of helps my brain think through what I just read and kind of helps me make connections between clues and stuff. So, first of all, Fordney walks in, there's a small dark room, and there is a note written in the dead man's handwriting that reads that, you know, he's taking his life, and that's terrible, don't do that. But regardless, the the room is described as just having the table and the chair where the dead man was found. And there was a bed, and a highly ornate brand new wastebasket, which is strange. And according to other evidence, he had not left the room for 24 hours before he was discovered. So yeah, so this body has kind of just been sitting here for a while, <laughs> whether or not he was killed the full 24 hours before, or whether it was somewhere in the middle. So in the guy's wallet, all there were were two $20 bills, a cheap watch, and an expensive wallet which had a beautiful woman pictured in it. And then in the room, all that they found was a dictionary, scraps of letter in a feminine handwriting, which was found in the trash can, a pen, some cheap stationery, a few clothes pipe and tobacco, and the knife that he killed himself with. Supposedly. But it was actually murder, so. (laughs) But yeah, let's see. I think some of the most important clues that we've kind of gone over, first of all, was the strangeness that everything in the room was kind of meager and old, like the chair and the table and the bed were kind of old, but then there was like this really ornate wastebasket, which is random. That's the only expensive thing in the room, from what we can tell. 
Although he did have $40 on him, which is a lot. And he had an expensive wallet, so maybe there's a connection between the ornate wastebasket, the expensive wallet, which had the picture of the woman in it, and the $40 that he had. I don't know if we'll be able to uh, think of a motive for the murder, so I don't think that's going to help us in any way, but... Yeah, so I'm sure that the woman in the picture has something to do with it, because remember in the wastebasket there was found scraps of a letter in a feminine handwriting, and we can assume, based on the few clues that are in the story, that the woman who wrote that letter is the same as the woman that was pictured in his wallet. Maybe we need to prove that Paul was not the one to write the note. Maybe that's kind of the key to this. Ah, we need to prove that someone else wrote the note, but how do you prove that someone else wrote the note? Maybe that's not even what I'm looking for, but that's the only thing I got right now. Yeah, I really don't know. So, I'm out of ideas, I've been looking at this for long enough, so let's read the solution. The note was written with pencil, yet there was no pencil found in the room. Apparently, the murderer wrote the note to resemble the dead man's handwriting, and through force of habit, put it in his pocket. Oh, so it did have to do with the note. So, I was right about that part, but I won't give myself any points because I didn't get anything else. I totally forgot that it was written in pencil. I literally read the sentence where it said there lay a penciled note in the handwriting resembling the dead man. So I literally said the words <laughs> several times. Oh, man. So, yeah, dude, that was super clever. Like, it described pretty extensively the contents of the room, and yet I didn't realize that the penciled note couldn't have happened if he was in that room alone for 24 hours. Like, where, where did the pencil go, you know? Anyways... So, let's move on to the next one. Maybe have some better luck. <laughs> Midnight Murder Who are you and what's this all about? Demanded Inspector Kelly, as he and Professor Fortney arrived at the apartment in an answer to a call. I'm Jack Day. I share this apartment with Al Quayle. I returned from the theater shortly after midnight, went into his room, and found him lying there on the bed. When I saw he was dead, I called headquarters at once. Gosh, this is terrible. Those your things on the bed? Asked Kelly, indicating a blood-stained muffler, a hat, gloves, and cane. Yes, I tossed them there before I rushed to the telephone. Got that blood on the muffler when I bent over him. What time did you leave here this evening? Uh, shortly before seven, replied Day. Can you prove you were at the theater all evening? Demanded Kelly. Uh, why, yes, I went with a friend. He's been dead about six hours, Inspector, said the police surgeon, finishing his examination at this point. A deep knife wound, below the heart. As Fortney picked up an earring from the floor, Day exclaimed, Why, that belongs to his fiancée. Well, there'll be no wedding bells for him, remarked Kelly, with a start as he discovered that Day's cane was a sword stick with a long, thin, shining blade. Any blood, Inspector? asked Fortney. None. Clean as a whistle. Well, Day, looks mighty bad for you, stated the professor. I don't know yet whether you killed him with that cane or whether you killed him at all, but I know you were here a few minutes after he was stabbed. How did the professor know? So this time we don't need to prove that he was the murderer, we just need to prove that he was there a few minutes after he was stabbed. Let's see, I think I found something. So, uh, the police surgeon says that he had been dead about six hours, right? So the roommate returned at midnight and immediately called the headquarters. So presumably this is just like, about half past midnight, right? So it's not it's not too late after midnight. And according to the police surgeon, he was dead about six hours. And presumably, blood dries in six hours, right? And yet the roommate still got blood on his muffler by leaning over him. 
So I think that's strange, just that the blood was still fresh enough that it got on something that touched it. Because even after a little bit, even if it's a lot of blood, it still dries in six hours, you know? <laughs> Although it is strange that his muffler got blood on it. Like, why was he wearing a muffler when he was in the room? Anyways, I don't know if that's important, because we don't need to prove that he was the murderer. We just need to prove that he was there. So, yeah. <laughs> That was a pretty quick one, but I think I'm confident with that answer, so let's read the solution. Day said he got the blood on his muffler when he bent over Quail's body. As blood coagulates and dries in a short time, it would have been impossible for him to have stained his muffler unless it had touched the blood of Quail shortly after his death. Therefore, Fordney knew he must have been with Quail soon after he was stabbed. Haha, <laughs> got it. <laughs> that one wasn't too bad, um... Although I did kind of have to think about the timing a little bit, you know, but still, I'm proud of that. I got that, like, you know, immediately. <laughs> I don't do that very often, although last week I did do it, and I'm very proud of that still. But anyways, let's move on to the last one, shall we? Speakeasy stick up. I had counted the cash, and as I was working the combination to open the wall safe, I heard this guy in back of me say, Get him up, Bo. This is a stick up. I reached for the ceiling as he says, Make a move and I'll drill you. He didn't sound like he was foolin', so I kept quiet. Well, he comes over, gives me a prod with his gun, pockets the dough, and asks me where the best liquor is, saying he don't want no bar whiskey either. I told him, and he poured himself a drink. Then he got real sociable-like, but wouldn't let me take my hands down. He kept on talking and making wisecracks, but finally got tired, I guess. With a warning that, if I moved before I could count twenty, my wife would be a widow, he beat it, concluded Sullivan. How much did he take? inquired Professor Fordney, who had entered the speakeasy after hearing the bartender's call for help. About five hundred dollars, Sullivan replied. We had a good day. Haven't you a gun in here? Sure, but I didn't have a chance. I ain't exactly no Boy Scout, but this mug was too big and tough-looking for me to tackle. How did you get that cut on your hand? inquired the professor. And that bruise on your finger? <laughs> Opening a case of lemons, answered Sullivan. Well, said Fordney, if your whiskey isn't any better than your attempt at a fake holdup, I'll have ginger ale. You're right. The bruise had nothing to do with it, but... How did Fordney know the stick-up was a fake? Ah, oh, a fake stick-up. These are always fun. So, again, we're going to do the thing where I summarize, because if I don't have a solution that kind of immediately comes to mind, then I have to kind of summarize it to wrap my brain around what I just read and kind of, you know, think things through. So this guy Sullivan, who apparently runs a speakeasy, had counted the cash, and he was en route to opening the wall safe to put the money in. And behind him, he hears them say, Get him up, Bo, this is a stick-up, and all that good stuff. So yeah, his hands were in the air, and he was kept quiet. And then the stick-up comes over and pokes him with the gun, takes the money, and then pours himself a drink. Then he talks a bunch, and then he eventually leaves. So, yeah, I mean, one thing that I did notice was that... Sullivan describes the guy as being big and tough-looking, but according to his story, he never saw him, because he was facing the wall safe when the guy came over, and he never says, like, that he saw him face-to-face. -face. So, I think that he never saw him, therefore, he couldn't have known that he was quote-unquote big and tough-looking. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, he probably could have assumed it from his voice, but he literally called him big and tough-looking. He didn't call him big and tough-sounding, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, yeah. I think I'm confident in that solution. So, let's uh, read the solution and find out. Sullivan, the bartender, 
said that, as he worked the combination to open the wall safe, he heard the holdup man behind him. As he was not permitted to move, he could not have known the gunman was a big, tough-looking mug, as he described him. As there would be no other motive in telling this impossible story, the holdup was faked. Dude, I got two out of three, that's pretty good! Man, I'm proud of myself this week, I'm doing pretty well. Also, I just wanted to say, so for this episode and for the next few episodes, I'm going to be in Europe, because obviously I'm American, so I'm going on vacation to Europe for a couple weeks. So uh, this will be published just a few days before I leave, so I'm going to try and pre-record a bunch of my episodes, and I'll hopefully be able to get all of my episodes out on time just as normal, but if there's a missing or a late episode, just understand, I'm going to have to be editing these all the week prior to when I'm leaving. We'll see how that goes. Hopefully I'm able to get them all done, but if not, oh well, you'll understand, I hope. So yeah. Anyways, this, <laughs> this episode was a lot of fun. I'm proud of myself that I got the last two correct. So anyways, I love doing these episodes, as I say every week, but these are genuinely just so much fun to make and so much fun to figure out, and I always feel so smart when I get them right, you know? So yeah, just a couple things I wanted to mention. If you guys have any recommendations for me, any, like, feedback, any comments, please email them to me at classicmysteriespod.gmail.com. You can also leave a review on any podcast that you're using, because that would both give me feedback, and it would also help this podcast spread to a bigger audience, because these stories and these detectograms, which is a wonderful word, <laughs> are amazing, and I think that more people should know them. So, yeah. As I mentioned in the very beginning of this episode, this series is only a sub-series to my actual podcast, which is called Classic Mysteries, as I'm sure you noticed. Um, my whole shtick is that I just read mystery books that are from, like, the 1920s or before, and I just comment on them, and I make jokes about them, and it's a great time. So, if you guys wanted to listen to some episodes of that, feel free. Right now, I'm in the middle of reading a book. It's called Bulldog Drummond, and it's going to be a very long series. I'm only, like, halfway through the book right now. But it's a great book, and I'm really enjoying it, and the main character is just so sassy and sarcastic, and it's so funny to me. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening, and yeah, I'm still trying to figure out my unique outro for this segment, but I think last episode we agreed, or I agreed with myself, that I would be doing a weird goodbye kind of thing. So, see you guys next Thursday. Bye. <laughs>